Hi, this is Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMNM, and welcome to the MMNM Podcast for the week of May 10, 2020. We talk a lot on this podcast about the force with which the pandemic hit health systems around the world and how it disrupted the launching of medicines and its uneven impact on prescribing. But what's the quantitative impact of all that on the drug industry? Moreover, now that efforts are well underway in this country to complete the initial wave of vaccinations by 2022, and a lot is being cumulatively spent on COVID-19 shots, how much has that offset last year's performance by the industry? Here to answer those questions is my special guest, Murray Aitken. He is SVP at IQVIA and Executive Director of the IQVIA Institute for Human Data Science. IQVIA has a new research report out, The Global Spending and Usage of Medicines, which was released by the Institute late last month. And I like to think of it as one of the definitive reports on drug spending. And if you haven't had a chance to read it, that's okay. Murray's going to give us a rundown on spending last year, as well as the outlook for all medicine use through 2025 and beyond. Murray, welcome back to the podcast. Good to uh, see you again. Talk to you. Likewise. I think the last time uh, we talked to each other, you were in the, well, actually, um, last time you were on the podcast, rather, we talked to each other on the phone for, for an interview. Uh, but the last time you were on the podcast was in the studio in February 2020. Uh, and you discussed the potential of big data to help track and predict the spread of what was then labeled an outbreak of COVID-19. So a lot has happened, of course, but it's good to speak with you under improving circumstances. Likewise, likewise. I think that was about 65 weeks ago um, since I am counting how long it's been since uh, since I haven't been on the road and, and uh, you know, working outside the house. So um, anyway, it's, it's good to be back with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so just a couple of housekeeping items as we usually do on this podcast. The brand has a number of initiatives, but just a couple that are most near term. MMM and Hall of Femme uh, has a virtual collective and award ceremony coming up on June 3rd. Uh, it's free to register for this one at mmmhalloffem.com, all one word, and you can uh, join that and salute uh, the uh, women who were inducted into this year's class of outstanding uh, women leaders in the healthcare marketing industry. And coming up less than a week later, on June 9th, please join us virtually again for our Pinnacle Awards ceremony, uh, where we will be uh, saluting the 20 who were inducted into MMM's first ever Pinnacle Awards program, which of course celebrates those in our industry for their career achievements. And again, that's coming up June 9, and you can uh, register for that for free as well at mmmpinnaclewards.com. And as always, you can find out more about these events at the all-new mmm-online.com. Okay, back to the interview with Murray. Uh, you know, much has been said about how the pandemic impacted the general economy and its disruption of the healthcare system. When all is said and done, it didn't have quite as big of an impact on medicine spending as some might have ex expected, right? That's right, Mark. When uh, I mean, I don't want to minimize the extent to which there was disruption uh, in in the in the health system um, for pharmaceutical companies, for the market for medicines, um, and certainly at at some points in the year it was um, severe. Uh, but when we look back at the um, the, the 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 full year of uh, 2020, we see a relatively modest. Um, impact from the pandemic. We saw um, what we would estimate about $23 billion less uh, in spending on medicines. Uh, so that's a reduction in the market for, for drugs of about $23 billion, uh, about 1.8% off the um, growth rate as a result. 
Um, and, you know, that's not insignificant, but, um, uh, you know, things weren't as bad as uh, perhaps they were anticipated, you know, sitting at the beginning of, of April, uh, uh, for example. Um, just a few things that we did see happening during the year. I think, you know, we definitely saw the stockpiling of, of medicines happening when the threat of um, uh, uh, restrictions on movement were um, on the horizon. Um, and then we saw that dramatic drop in uh, patient visits to, to doctors and that therefore resulted in fewer new therapy starts. We saw the switch to telemedicine, you know, take off. So these were all, I would say, big move the needle um, differences that we saw um, through the year. But then from the summer, um, you know, we, we mostly saw a recovery, um, uneven in different parts of the world and uneven in different parts of uh, the United States. Uh, but by the end of the year, we were back, you know, not at the level uh, pre-pandemic, but, you know, about five percentage points below that level. Um, so, you know, overall, there was a remarkably actually strong uh, recovery by the, uh, by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, we should also mention that the total cumulative spending on COVID vaccines through 2025 is projected to be $157 billion. So that's kind of offset things a bit. Uh, well, that's right. Um, and that, by the way, is very much a testament to uh, the pharmaceutical industry um, and really the unprecedented effort to uh, both discover and develop uh, and, and get emergency use authorizations for these uh, vaccines, right? Let's not forget what a remarkable story that is. Um, the 157 billion that we've modeled as the total amount that will be spent on COVID-19 vaccines um, through 2025 um, is, um, you know, again, in, in some sense, it's a large number, um, you know, relative to total pharmaceutical spending, it's, uh, it's less than 2%. Um, and certainly relative to the, uh, the human uh, consequence of the pandemic and the broader economic uh, consequences of the pandemic, it's a, it's a very small amount um, that, uh, that, you know, that, 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 that $157 billion represents. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, the good news is um, we've got the uh, vaccines available. Um, and as I've been saying, you know, if we spend less than 157 billion, that won't be good because that will mean that we haven't reached the 70% vaccination rate, which is what that number is modeled on. And that's a global uh, percentage. Um, obviously we're, we're far from there today. Um, and, you know, there is concern that even in the uh, developed uh, uh, countries were seeing a, a slowing down in the uh, vaccination rates, um, you know, when we're still far from uh, the ideal level. So hopefully we'll spend um, all that money and maybe even more, um, you know, over the next five years. Well, let's take a step back for a second and perhaps peel back the onion a little bit. We heard a lot about how uh, the pandemic um, had an uneven impact on uh, medicine use, uh, you know, certainly infusion drugs that required one to go to the doctor's office uh, were, were impacted. Pills that could be picked up at the pharmacy or mail ordered, you know, for, um, you know, sometimes 30 or 60 or 90 day supplies actually, you know, grew more. Um, I think as did self-injectables, the specialty drugs uh, to a certain extent were, were not as, as, as impacted as the infusion medicine. But um, talk, talk about how COVID has altered 
what we think of as the historic drivers uh, of medicine use uh, in this country? Well, in terms of the you know different types of medicines, um, you know, yes, we definitely saw. Uh, disruption in the, um, you know, in, in hospital-based uh, therapies or, or infusion um, therapies. Um, but, but I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, most of the medicines, um, you know, consumed uh, are the result of um, refills and ongoing therapy. Um, so even when we had a reduction in the new therapy starts, which we did see, you know, that's always, uh, you know, a very, a relatively small, you know, 15% or so um, of, the, of the total uh, market over the course of a year. So, you know, again, that speaks to the resilience of the, of the market here. I think, you know, what we did see um, uh, when, when we step back and, and think about what's, what has really changed sort of fundamentally in terms of the medicines market, um, you know, the big drivers of medicine use remain um, intact. In uh, again, albeit disrupted by less patient visits to their uh, GPs, uh, less follow-ons, less fewer diagnosis, uh, less initiation of treatment. Um, but the the sort of broad uh, uh, drivers of of growth and spending, which is really around new drug launches, um, access to those uh, medicines, offset by losses of exclusivity and, and you know, uh, uh, and the entering of generics and biosimilars, those sorts of factors are in place, you know, as they were um, prior to the um, prior to the pandemic. I mean, we, we did see changes in specific therapy areas. Um, you know, we saw a, a steep reduction in the use of um, antibiotics. Um, of, of pain medicines. And I think some of that was linked to the reduction in, um, you know, social interaction, playground activity, uh, children in schools, uh, uh, you know, and, and so on. Um, and we did see some increase, you know, in um, anxiety medicines, uh, antidepressants and, and, and that side of things as well. But again, in the scheme of things, relatively modest um, impacts. Let's shift gears and talk about the five-year forecast uh, in developed markets first. What are you predicting overall as a rate of growth, and how does that compare to the last five-year period? So we're uh, predicting uh, a, a two to five percent compound annual growth rate uh, in spending on medicines in the uh, in the major developed markets. That's using invoice prices or list prices. So we pair that back um, a bit for. Um, rebates and discounts that we know um, occur and which don't end up on the manufacturer's uh, uh, top line. Um, uh, that rate of growth will be, you know, it's it's not too far from what it was for the last five years, uh, which came in at 3.8%. The five years prior to that, the beginning of the decade, um, averaged 4.8%. So, you know, it's low single-digit growth. Um, and uh, in the U.S. market specifically, we're forecasting on, and now on a net price basis, we're forecasting zero to three uh, percent growth over the next uh, five years on a compound annual growth rate basis, uh, and that that'll be down from three percent um, for the last five years. So, you know, the days of double-digit growth, of high single-digit growth um, at the industry level. Uh, behind us. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to be in this somewhere between zero and five, call it low single digit um, growth range uh, for quite some time. 
there will be differences by therapy area. Um, of course, oncology is going to be higher, uh, immunology is probably going to be higher, and so on. Um, but overall, in the market, we're we're in a slow. It's a large market, but it's a slow moving, slow growing market at this stage. Hmm. That's that's a really interesting uh, sort of a turning point there. Um, how do launches compare? Uh, you know, similarly with the five year forecast versus uh, how they've been the last five years. So the good news is the R&D machine is, has never been stronger uh, in terms of bringing innovative medicines uh, through clinical development and uh, into the market. Um, those medicines increasingly are focused on rare diseases, um, in particular rare cancers. Um, and so the, the, the sort of mix of the portfolio of the um, new product launches, uh, you know, continues to drift towards smaller patient populations, um, and um, and therefore, you know, smaller sales uh, potential on average. Um, we're, you know, based on what we see in the late stage clinical development pipeline, we're projecting over the next five years there'll be. 290 to 315, so call it 300 or so new uh, novel active substances launched. Um, that'll be up from 260 over the past five years. Uh, again, that's a testament to the strength of, of R&D. Um, when we convert that to dollars, um, we're estimating an average of about $37 billion in spending on uh, newly launched drugs per year um, over the next five years. That will be down slightly from an average of 39 billion per year over the last um, five years. So, you know, the activity level is high. The nature of the drugs uh, being launched uh, increasingly skews towards uh, smaller populations. And even with you know, what are referred to as high uh, price points uh, for those drugs, the total amount being um, spent on those drugs and the, and the total market for those drugs uh, is, um, you know, is in that sort of 35 to $40 billion a year uh, range. What we do know that is that the, uh, you know, efforts by pharmaceutical companies to launch uh, drugs has had to change uh, as the consequence of the um, pandemic and the restriction and access uh, for um, sales reps and, and key opinion leaders to, to meet with prescribers. Uh, so we know that there's been a lot of activity um, you know, within the industry to change the approaches to, to more virtual ones. Um, and you know, I, I think that is, uh, is having some impact on the initial uptake of these newly launched uh, drugs. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, a new drug with a great clinical profile, that's a real breakthrough in terms of, you know, therapeutic options for patients um, is still going to do well, uh, you know, even with less in-person, uh, you know, visits uh, to the uh, prescribers. Hmm. Okay, great. Now, um, overall, when you talk about uh, you know, the, the spending forecasts and the fact that it's slightly down uh, from years past. Do you think that's, or, or how much uh, of a function is that of the industry moving toward more of a kind of a commoditized um, situation where we see more incremental improvements rather than big um, exponential improvements? 
you know, do, do you agree with that notion that we're moving more toward a commoditized market or do you think we're, we're, we're not? Um, so overall, I would not agree with that. I think we've got more um, first in class medicines coming through. We've got more medicines that are deemed breakthrough therapies by the um, Food and Drug Administration um, than we have in the in the past. Um, and we have, you know, truly novel um, therapeutic approaches. We call them, you know, next generation biotherapeutics, the cell therapies, the gene therapies, and, and so on. Um, you know, which is still a small part of the of the market, but it's but they're growing, and you know, it's hard to call any of that um, incremental uh, in terms of innovation. I think you know, pharmaceutical companies recognized some years ago that um, the notion of investing hundreds of billions of dollars into developing incrementally better uh, uh, drugs in the hope that a good marketing campaign or a good sales force you know would enable those drugs to to be you know to provide a return on that investment i i think those days passed us by you know a decade ago um and and so you know we have a pipeline that you know again as i've said it skews much more towards uh, treating rare diseases. Um, it's much more, uh, you know, focused on on small subpopulations, uh, biomarker-based, uh, and and so on. Uh, and um, and and that to me all speaks to a certainly a mindset that no one's going after incremental uh, change. Um, everyone's you know really swinging for the fences um, and and trying to um, bring to market uh, very differentiated, clinically differentiated drugs. Sure, sure, and I, I think you know, as, and I agree with you for what it's worth. You know, this, the to the extent that the industry is moving toward more targeted uh, treatments and meeting unmet need, uh, in in many cases, that that certainly um, would argue against any kind of commoditization. I think I kind of uh, was going in that direction uh, because of some of the things I've heard in healthcare marketing spheres of late are that uh, patients want to be treated more like consumers, and there's more people coming into healthcare marketing with uh, CPG. Uh, consumer packaged goods skills, uh, and in in those areas, in the consumer packaged goods marketing areas, you specialize in differentiating between competing products whose differences are not all that great. So, I, listen, I think the it, it's incredibly important that um, you know what's referred to as a patient centric approach is taken to marketing drugs. Uh, we would actually prefer to use the term sort of person-centric than patient-centric, just to broaden out what we're talking about. But, but absolutely, that um, skill set of, of being able to understand and then reach and market to um, individual uh, uh, patients is, is very important. Um, but that, to me, is not about a commoditized, you know, market of drugs. It's about understanding what matters to the um, patient um, to you know understand what patient outcomes matter which may be different than what their uh, you know their, their 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 physician views as important um, but but you know patient reported outcomes patient centered outcomes um, quality of life measures um, you know these matter a lot to patients I, I don't I don't equate that with commoditization of you know the sort of the the drug portfolio. Um, I do equate that with a sense that patients matter, 
um, and, and understanding what matters to them should matter to a drug manufacturer and marketer. Thank you for uh, humoring, humoring me there for a moment. <laughs> uh, talk about marketing for a sec. Um, you know, I always like to get your views there. Okay, yep. back to the, uh, the report here. Uh, you know, there, there's always an impact uh, from loss of exclusivity. Um, sure. And you predict that such impacts will increase. Why is that? Well, it's mostly um, a function of just, you know, simply the, 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 the timing of the patents expiring on some, some big products. So we're, um, you know, reflecting in our uh, new report that over the next five years, uh, there'll be $166 billion less spent on brands uh, that have lost um, patent protection or other forms of exclusivity. And that's up from $114 billion in the prior five years. So that's a $50 billion um, swing. Um, it's also uh, you know, it's also larger because we've got um, biosimilar uh, competition um, playing out, you know, right now in the even in the US in full force. Um, it's been in full force in Europe for some time, um, but the last couple of years have really been an inflection point in the uh, US with the arrival of biosimilars. Um, and, and we're seeing, you know, their uh, uh, arrival reduce uh, biologic uh, brand spending, you know, by $50 billion over the next um, five years compared to $16 billion in the last five years. Um, so, uh, you know, that's another factor why the um, loss of exclusivity impact, if you like, um, is expected to rise um, through 2025. So you talked about that inflection point uh, for biosimilars finally arriving. Of course, we know that some companies' brands aren't only victimized, so to speak, from biosimilars. Some are in the biosimilars business and so profit from them as well. How does that shake out for industry? Well, I think it's fair to say that if you look at the biosimilar manufacturers, um, they you know, fall in a couple of categories, right? There are the um, companies that are, that are bringing biosimilars to market that are um, mostly R&D-based, um, innovation-focused, uh, companies. Uh, then you have, uh, you know, other companies that are more uh, exclusively focused on on biosimilars. Although most of them actually would like to be uh, in the innovative medicine business as well, and and uh, you know they're all uh, investing in that uh, in that area. Um, but I think for the particularly for the um, for the large R and D based companies, you know, they recognize that um, innovation. Uh, you know, isn't a um, a, a finite uh, uh, sort of item that um, innovative drugs have a life um, that does end, and um, and the whole nature of an R and D based company is to continue that innovation cycle. Um, so you know, I, I think, and and they continue to invest in the next generation of of innovation, realizing that at the end of the patent term for for originated drugs, um, spending will decline. There's an opportunity for biosimilars in that context, but that savings uh, that the biosimilars can bring um, also creates the headroom to pay for the next generation of um, innovative drugs, which those same companies are, uh, are, are pursuing. Um, and you know, and and that's the way the system should work, right? The the whole notion of intellectual property protection. Uh, enables a, a, you know, a reward to be given to 
those who innovate, but that reward has a finite um, period. Um, and, um, and and so I think, you know, it, it, what we're seeing is very healthy. Um, that we've seen play out in the small molecule generic side, you know, for, for several decades. Uh, and, and now it's really playing out in full force on the biologic side. Mm, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned um, the, the patent uh, support because I wanted to ask you about that as well. Uh, we should also mention that global spending, according to your report, will be lifted by stronger market growth in the what you call the far emerging or the emerging markets, uh, but offset by slower growth in the developed markets. And those losses of exclusivity will really, you know, kind of take their toll there in the developed markets. But speaking of, of emerging markets, you know, the Biden administration has voiced support for waiving patents which was a bit of a surprise move. How might that influence medicine spending and growth? Yeah, so I think it was um, uh, definitely a bit of a surprise that the administration took that, has taken that um, stance. Um, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Um, uh, you know, I, I think this issue is far from resolved, um, but the notion of waiving patents, um, you know, I think is very disruptive to the, uh, to the established system. Right. And and therefore, um, it, it only has a downside, I would say, in terms of the sort of innovative um, biomedical ecosystem that's used to operating, you know, in a certain environment. And that environment includes um, uh, intellectual property protection, uh, which is typically defended by uh, by governments uh, and and the WTO. Um, and which enables, uh, you know, a return on the capital that's been at risk, been put at risk in, in developing uh, new medicines. You know, if we are now entering an era where those uh, patents can be waived, um, you know, that's a that's a disruption. That's a negative disruption to the system. Um, you know, I think, you know, right now the waiver is being framed as as only relating to uh the 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 vaccines are you know for COVID 19 you know but of course the question is is there a way that you know once you've crossed that line that you can um, continue to restrict it um to you know a a very small number of um of, of medicines and i think that's what everyone is somewhat concerned about um, you know we've had in 2020 a, a record amount of capital uh venture capital uh, flowing into life sciences, um, you know, that's flowing in because those investors see that there's, while it's a high risk investment, absolutely, right? Drug development is is uh, is is a high risk undertaking. That there's an opportunity for a reward at the end of it. To the extent that that reward is diminished uh, by waiving um, patent rights. Um, that reduces the incentive for that capital to flow into the life sciences. Um, and I think that's what we should all be, you know, very concerned about, um, you know, because that that wouldn't be good for, you know, for anyone uh, if we saw a, a slowdown in the um, investment level and activity uh, that has brought us so far, including, by the way, the development of uh, the COVID-19 vaccines and and therapeutics and as people are saying what about COVID 25 right who's going to be investing in that um, a few years down the line if we have a, a you know a brand new need um, at that time so I, I think it's definitely something um, we should be um, you know concerned about and watching closely to see exactly how this 
um, will play out. Now let's delve into a couple of the therapeutic areas here before I let you go. Um, oncology and immunology are expected to grow the most. And um, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, if you could kind of just call out, you know, some of the standout, uh, you know, uh, therapies that you see in those two uh, therapeutic areas that are kind of catching your eye. So in oncology, uh, absolutely, we see an enormous amount of um, activity. Um, you know, oncology drugs are now um, 30% of the late stage pipeline, 40% of the early stage pipeline, um, a lot of activity in um, in the um, next generation biotherapeutics, the, the, the cell and, and gene therapies, um, you know, a lot of movement towards uh, biomarker driven um, uh, therapies. Um, also, you know, we're going to see more tissue agnostic uh, drugs come through, so we're not going to talk about drugs uh, in terms of oncology drugs in terms of their indications against uh, specific tumor types, um, but but rather more uh, molecular or or genetic um, uh, types. We're going to see um, oncology drugs um, that uh, benefit from next generation sequencing to determine which targeted therapy is right for which patient. Um, we also have on the horizon um, the advent of, of liquid biopsies, which is um, you know, potentially quite transformative in terms of um, early diagnosis and less invasive diagnosis um, of cancers, as well as um, you know, following up uh, post-treatment um, to, to determine whether, in fact, um, the, uh, the, the, the cancer has been effectively um, thwarted. So, you know, and, and we're expecting over 100 new oncology drugs will be launched over the next five years. So tremendous amount of activity there. Um, on the on the uh, neurology side, you know, w- you know, we've been watching the the, the investments there. Uh, a lot of it is focused, of course, on um, um, Alzheimer's and and you know has yet to um, yield the sort of breakthrough therapy that. I know everyone would like to um, see. We've, we still have a big decision coming up on on one potential uh, treatment this year. Um, but in addition to um, Alzheimer's uh, focus, we we also have a lot of um, focus on other sort of more neurodegenerative um, diseases uh, coming through the pipeline, um, including Parkinson's, uh, which is which which again remains a disease uh, with a significant unmet need. Um, we've had progress recently in, in migraine, uh, but I think more to be done there, but also we've got schizophrenia, bipolar, right? I mean, these are areas that, that had the atypical antipsychotics, uh, you know, come through a decade or so ago, uh, uh, um, uh, ago. um, but, but where there is a, a sort of a, a new focus on getting to some of the, um, uh, uh genomic, um, underpinnings of those uh, diseases, uh, incorporating biomarkers to identify um, effective um, therapies, uh, and and so on. So it's another area where you know we're we're optimistic in terms of the scientific breakthroughs that will bring a new patient uh, treatment options um, over the next five, maybe ten uh, years. Sure, and and you kind of were referring there too. Um, the one that's uh, going up for, for review soon, uh, which is the, the Biogen uh, product, I believe, uh, right. experimental therapy rather. And I think Lily has one as well uh, in development. Um, are those factored into your forecast at all at this point? 
Um, we've we've included them in what we call the ups, upside scenario. Um, so they're not in our in our base case, but definitely, um, you know, if if those drugs are um, approved, uh, if they come to market, um, you know, they they will. Um, I mean, there'll, there'll be enormous demand for them. I think, actually, frankly, you know, regardless of what's on the label, um, the unmet need is is so uh, large that um, there'll, there'll definitely be a, a a large and sudden market for those drugs. Indeed. Okay. So you talked about oncology, immunology, neurology. Uh, is there anything else that marketers should keep their eye on uh, the rest of the year? Absolutely. I mean, in the 2021 is is going to be a year of um, continued impact of the pandemic, right? We're not out of the woods uh, yet. I'm still sitting in my home office. Um, I think what will be important to watch is um, what we refer to as the backlog of, of patients uh, in the U.S., right? We're pegging that at a, at a billion patient diagnosis visits that didn't happen last year. Um, when will those visits happen? Um, and, and when will we see, um, you know, increased numbers of more advanced diseases presenting um, when, when patients do get their checkup or when, when the symptoms become more um, severe? Um, I think marketers have got to be redrawing their patient journey maps um, in recognition that no no patient's journey this year is going to look the same as it did pre-pandemic, and and the same will go for next year and the year after, right? So I think you know modeling that out, what does that look like, and what impact does that have on your messaging, on the demand for medicines, um, on your engagement with um, healthcare professionals is is very important. And then I think you know the 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 other impact that has yet to fully play out is is how healthcare professionals are rethinking um, their their practices, the way they practice uh, medicine, how they interact with um, patients, um, how they interact with uh, sales representatives and key opinion leaders from uh, pharmaceutical companies. Right? I mean, I think we're still in a bit of a state of flux um, on on that side as well, and and those are, are clearly very significant. Uh, um, you know, factors for for marketers um, to consider. Uh, And then the third thing, you know, to always watch in the first year of a new administration, uh, of course, are are policy changes. Um, You know, they're they're certainly being talked about, but as most of us know, they've been talked about for uh, for many years. Um, But I think, you know, you always want to keep your eye on on anything that that might, um, you know, be transformative uh, coming out of a new um, administration and, uh, and and Congress. Certainly, very significant things uh, for marketers to keep their eye on. Um, you know, especially if uh, you know on the policy point, if drug pricing you know suddenly leaps to the the top of the uh, agenda again, that'll be something that gets a lot of people's attention, of course. Okay, well, I, I always enjoy you know that the, the report takes into account prevailing trends. It's not just kind of static data points. Right. No, we we try to um, you know stay on top of what's changing. Um, I think, you know, we also like to make sure that we've got sort of the evidence to stand beyond behind what we say, um, to get beyond the headlines, to get behind the hype and sometimes the doom and gloom that that some that prevails some uh, you know sometimes um to really you know bring forward the evidence of what's really happening, how things are really playing out 
um, in the in the marketplace, in the way in which um, medicines are used and and the spending um, on those medicines. So always happy to share our perspectives uh, with you and 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 your audience. Oh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you as well, Mary. Thanks so much for uh, joining me again today. Great, thanks. Good to talk to you, Mark. Thank you. I'm going to leave it there. Uh, if you like this episode as much as I did, please give it a like. Subscribe to the podcast and help others discover the show. Um, that will do it for uh, uh, myself. Uh, and uh, I want to thank Murray again for joining us. I want to thank you all for, for listening. Uh, that was Murray Aitken. I'm Mark Iskowitz. We'll see you next time on the MMM podcast. Take care, everybody.